Reflections on William Shakespeare's Julius Caesar, narrated by Gil Bailey and produced by the Cornerstone Forum. Part 3. Men, wives, and children stare, cry out, and run as it were doomsday. In other words, this is an extremely critical moment. The particle physicists and the astrophysicists now are talking about how critical it was in the first, you know, six nanoseconds after the Big Bang. <laughs> it could have gone a totally different direction, you know, if certain things hadn't happened. Well, it's, there's something like that here. This is the absolutely the critical moment. And everybody seems to sense it, at least the conspirators seem to. With Publius and Antony gone, Brutus says, Stoop, Romans, stoop, and let us bathe our hands in Caesar's blood. Now remember, he said we must be sacrificers and not butchers. But in the presence of the, uh, the act itself, something else takes over. But I think it's still within the sacrificial logic. Stoop, Romans, stoop, and let us bathe our hands in Caesar's blood up to the elbow, and besmear our swords. Then walk we forth even to the marketplace, and waving our red weapons o'er our heads, let's all cry peace, freedom, and liberty. Applying that justifying myth, while the blood is still warm, before we get away from this scene of smearing blood on their arms and their swords and walking out in the street like this, crying peace, liberty, and freedom, Go back to a central story in Exodus. Moses put all the commands of Yahweh into writing, and early the next morning he built an altar at the foot of the mountain with twelve standing stones for the twelve tribes of Israel. Then he directed certain young Israelites to offer holocaust and to immolate bullocks to Yahweh as communion sacrifices. Half of the blood Moses took up and put into basins. The other half he cast on the altar. And taking the book of the covenant, he read it to the listening people, and they said, We will observe all that Yahweh has decreed. We will obey. Then, Yahweh, then Moses took the blood and cast it towards the people. This, he said, is the blood of the covenant that Yahweh has made with you, containing all these rules. He took a bucket of blood and threw it on everybody. Now Moses is trying to compensate for a sacrificial deficiency. In his case, the lack of a human victim. This reference here to certain young Israelites, Martin Buber thinks, and I think brilliantly, insightfully, thinks that that's a reference to an oblique reference to the firstborn. The firstborn were really the sacrificial victim. The human firstborn were in the most ancient situation the sacrificial victim. There was a substitution. That's what the Isaac, Abraham and Isaac story is about, Yahweh insisting on a substitution. There's a substitution made early in the tradition. The substitution is later for an animal. But then there's also substitution to the Levite priesthood. The Levites become the substitutes for the firstborn. So the Levites don't actually uh, get sacrificed except when things get out of hand. But they carry the sacrificial beast very dramatically to the altar because everybody knows that if, something, if it gets too intense, the, the human victim has the animal victim in his arm. This is, doesn't have too much to do with Julius Caesar uh, but what does have to do with Joseph is that Moses 
has a sacrificial deficiency. He has an animal victim instead of a human victim. And so he has to compensate in some way. And he compensates with an excessive use of blood to make up for the fact that it's not a human victim. Brutus has a sacrificial deficiency. And that is that the victimization was blatantly criminal. And so he has to make up uh, for it as well. And he does, makes up for it in the same way. This use of blood to the point of being awesome. Because both Moses and Brutus are try, have to achieve what Girard calls the cathartic quotient. In other words, this event has to be, has to be, it has to eclipse any revulsion that we might have. It has to be so awesome that misgivings and revulsion are just whited out in the presence of this stunning, awesome, numinous event. And Brutus achieves it by an excess of blood, which is, which is what happens when the sacrificial cult is wounded as it is every place that's had any contact with the biblical tradition, where the sacrificial tradition is wounded, its only way to try to achieve, to achieve the cathartic quotient is by adding more blood to the episode of victimization. Hitler, six million people. Stalin, untold millions of people. Mao, untold millions of people the nuclear arms race, ready to wipe out the entire planet. It's the only way of achieving awe once it starts to break down. More blood. Intriguingly, this same Alfred Harbage, who's the, the uh, Shakespeare critic, has an interesting thing to say. He says, sp- speaking of this scene as a piece of drama, as a piece of theater, he says, this washing of the blood scene on stage is a daring device, says Harbage, but so persuasive that fact and fiction seem to coalesce and we feel as if we are witnessing the event itself rather than its representation. Now that's interesting. He says, somehow, strangely, when this kind of thing happens on stage, it makes us feel as though we're witnessing the event itself rather than its representation. It's as though, if Girard is right, the event itself is, at, is the black hole at the heart of all cultural enterprise. But the, but the business of myth and ritual is to, is to camouflage it so that we are always only seeing the representation and not the event itself. And Harbaj is saying there's something about this scene that makes us feel as though we're seeing the event itself and not the representation. And that's because Shakespeare is orchestrating it and he is decoding the myth right there on stage. We look at it, we look at this scene, we're in the audience, we look at this scene and we have an experience that's something like deja vu. Maybe it's going into our back brain and we're saying, this somehow is familiar. Why is this familiar? In the same way that uh, some child who has, comp- who has successfully repressed a traumatic experience in youth might come upon a, a, a scene that replicates its major features and suddenly has this sense of, I've been here before. 
So Harbaugh says it's a daring device, but so persuasive that fact and fiction seem to coalesce. And we feel as if we are witnessing the event itself rather than its representation. And I think that is a feeling that we are destined to increasingly have as the sacrificial logic uh, falls further and further into collapse. Because we will, we will no longer be witnessing the representation, but the event itself. That, the event itself un, uh, insufficiently mythologized. Brutus had said, you will obviously have noticed, stoop, Romans, stoop. Uh, not only a, a reference to body posture, but a moral reference as well. And Cassius says, stoop then and wash in this blood. How Cassius goes on, how many ages hence shall this our lofty scene be acted over in states unborn and accents yet unknown? Now, this is a number of things. It's, it's Shakespeare uh, with a self-mocking in a way, playing as he does often with his own work, his own artistic craft. Uh, in a, he, he's having a, an ancient Roman talk about how it is that someday there'll be Elizabethan e Englishman acting this thing on some stage somewhere, right there where it's happening. But more than that, it's a recognition of the ritual legacy of the sacrificial event. The sacrificial event is the genesis of all ritual. It will be reenacted. We will that now provide representations. If it works, we will evolve representations that will be stripped of, uh, of, the, uh, of the features that will, would obviously cause some uh, moral problems. And then we will have, and if that happens, if we, if we can evolve the representations and mythologize what it was that actually happened, then what we have is a maintenance sacrificial culture of the kind that isn't working as we've in this instance because the, they didn't find a heart in the, a, in the sacrificial offering which is a way of saying it's not working if we can live on the, on the representations of the event it, it will have it will provide us with a, with a sustenance sacrificial sustenance without us having to revert to the actual primitive thing itself and Brutus in response to that says how many times shall Caesar bleed in sport? And by sport he means in play, like a drama. How many times shall Caesar bleed in sport that now on Pompey's basis lies along no worthier than the dust? Violence is intensely mimetic. But sacralized violence appeals to mimeticism in an entirely different way. Sacralized violence is the violence of the god or the god's priesthood or, represent, or representative. And we are not allowed, under pain of severe consequences, to imitate the gods. We have all those Greek myths about what happens when you challenge the gods to a, to a, uh, to a, a music contest or to a weaving contest or something. So you can't do that. You don't imitate the gods. Stiff penalties for that. So the mimetic thing picks up on sacralized violence by repeating the evolved representative ritual. So what we do, the way we repeat 
the violence, we're, we're destined to repeat it because it's so mimetic, is ritually, if it's, if it's sacralized, because we're not allowed to repeat it literally. But if it's, you know, the common uh, garden variety violence, vulgar violence, uh, secular violence, profane violence, then we repeat it as is. Ritual and its soundtrack in myth will allude to the violence, but only in, a, in an oblique way. Bombs bursting in air gave proof through the night that our flag was still there. Bombs bursting in air. Sounds like the 4th of July. Well, it's supposed to. It's, a, it's, it's the euphemistic rendition of the sacrificial episode. See, Shakespeare is absolutely amazing here. Cassius and Brutus both say, at the moment they're doing this thing, they both say, this is going to be repeated time out of mind. The big if is, if they can mythologize it correctly. Gerard says, religious thought returns again and again to that supreme wonder, that last word of violence. Sacrifice is the boon worthy above all others of being preserved, celebrated, and memorialized, reiterated and reenacted in a thousand different forms, for it alone can prevent transcendental violence from turning back into reciprocal violence, the violence that really hurts, setting man against man and threatening the total destruction of the community. So we'll have ritual reenactments of the violent episode but as, as an alternative to a mimetic response to the violence, literal mimetic response to the violence. Brutus said, How many times shall Caesar bleed in sport that now on Pompey's basis lies along no worthier than the dust? And there's a great irony here because Caesar's lying at the foot of the pedestal to Pompey. He's lying at the foot of the pedestal of his last victim. And this is the destiny of those who perpetuate the sacrificial uh, enterprise with insufficiently, in an insufficiently mythologized context. In other words, it's a, it's a very risky game. If the sacrificial logic has been compromised or shattered, then literally those who live by the sword will die by the sword because they have no way of terminating. They have no, they can't achieve the, the recognition that that violence was sacred violence. And so it sets in motion a mimetic process which comes back on them. And, it, and it's perfectly described here. Caesar is lying dead at the foot of the pedestal to his last victim. And everybody else will do this likewise. Brutus and Cassius will, symbolically in a way, find themselves lying dead at the, at the, foot of the pedestal of Caesar. It just keeps going like that, if the sacrificial system has been compromised. Without the, sacrifici without the, the sacrificial protections, there's no sacred violence, and violence continues to return on its perpetrator. So when Brutus says, how many times will, uh, shall Caesar bleed in sports now that on Pompey's basis lies along no worthier than the dust? Cassius says, so oft as that shall be, so often shall the not of us be called the men that gave their country liberty. 
says, if we pull this off, we will be the founding fathers. If we can get our myth to play, we will be the founding fathers. If not, we'll end up at the foot of the pedestal of our victim. Anthony's servant comes back in and a counter-ritual begins. Anthony's servant says, Thus Brutus did my master bid me kneel. Thus did Mark Anthony bid me fall down. And being prostrate, thus he bade me say, If Brutus will vouchsafe that Anthony may safely come to him and be resolved how Caesar hath deserved to lie in death, Mark Anthony shall not love Caesar dead as well, so well as Brutus living. So he says, All Anthony wants, to know, wants is to be convinced of the... Of the imperative that drove the conspirators to do this. Anthony, Brutus says that's fine. Anthony enters. He says, I know not, gentlemen, what you intend. Who else must be let blood? Who else is rank? And there's a pun, of course, on the word rank. Uh, Rank meaning polluted, corrupted, sick. Uh, The solution for a lot of sicknesses and in uh, Shakespeare's time and earlier was bloodletting to to let a little blood flow, which, by the way, has a sacrificial origin. Let's not forget. But in any case, he's talking about a typical kind of a cure, a home cure for sickness. And Anthony says, I don't know uh, who else must be let blood, who else is rank, but the, the, the pun, of course, is on rank as sick and corrupted and rank as in prestige. Anthony's saying, you, your logic, the, the sacrificial logic, says we're eliminating those who are rank. But in fact, the mimetic truth is that you are eliminating those in the ranks above you. That's the mimetic fact. Bruce says to Anthony, our reasons are so full of good regard that were you, Antony, the son of Caesar, you should be satisfied. We're going to pull this mythologizing off with such consummate uh, craft that were you the son of Caesar, you would approve of our killing of Caesar. Remember, Casca had said when Casca was out in the street, uh, he came back to report what had gone on and Caesar had an, had an epileptic fit. And Casca said, when he came to himself again, he asked everybody for their forgiveness. Three or four winches, Casca goes on, three or four winches where I stood cried, alas, poor soul, and forgave him with all their hearts. But there's no heed to be taken of them. If Caesar had stabbed their mothers, they would have done no less. In other words, they were so caught up in the the Caesar myth, the Caesar soundtrack, that if Caesar had killed their mother, they would have approved. That's exactly what Brutus is saying. Were you the son of Caesar, Anthony? When we get finished working our myth on you, my boy, you will approve of our killing of Caesar. Were you his very son? In this this story in Leviticus 10 that I cherish, cherish is probably not the right word, Nadab and Abihu, sons of Aaron, each took his censer, put fire in it, and incense on the fire. 
and presented unlawful fire before Yahweh, fire which he had not prescribed for them. Then from Yahweh's presence a flame leaped out and consumed them, and they perished in the presence of Yahweh. Now, unquestionably, I think unquestionably what happened is that the two Levitic priests were pushed into the fire in the in a moment of, of uh, friend, intense frenzy, a, a liturgy which would have been an impressive liturgy, except it stepped over the line and resulted in human victimization. The next line in the text is, And Moses said to Aaron, That is what Yahweh meant when he said, In those who are close to me I show my holiness, and before all people I show my glory. And the next line is, Aaron remained silent. In other words, it slipped over and became human sacrifice. And Moses, knowing that violence is intensely mimetic if it isn't sacralized, knowing that this, that Aaron is the one that will respond to that kind of uh, the death of his own children, Moses turns to him and mythologizes it. And he says, they must have put two spoonfuls of incense in their censer or something like that. It's totally incidental, totally ridiculous. See, the Hebrew text, even when they try to mythologize it, can't do such a poor job of it that the truth jumps out at us. But the point I'm trying to make here is that Moses was able to, to provide a myth that was so compelling that Aaron, that Aaron uh, was silenced. He said, this violence is God's will, which is which is the sum and substance of the myth. Antony says, all I seek is the body. I want to take the body to the marketplace, and I would like to speak the funeral oration. And Cassius says to Brutus, I wouldn't do that if I were you, but Brutus says, no, we will do that. Brutus says, I will myself into the pulpit first and show the reason for our Caesar's death. What Antony shall speak, I will protest. He speaks by leave and by permission, and that we are contented Caesar shall have all true rites and lawful ceremony. And he leaves the stage to Antony alone, who gives a soliloquy. Looking down at the body of Caesar, he says, Over thy wounds now do I prophesy, which like dumb mouths do ope their ruby lips to beg the voice and utterance of my tongue. Now this is an astounding echo in a pagan setting of, of passages in the Gospels, where, for instance, in the 27th chapter of Matthew, at the moment of the crucifixion, it says the veil of the temple was torn in two, tombs opened, and the bodies of many holy men rose forth, and these, after the resurrection, came out of their tombs, entered the city, and appeared to a number of people. The dead start to come back alive. Now, what does that mean? In cha- it's more explicit in Luke chapter 11. This generation will have to answer for every prophet's blood that has been shed since the foundation of the world, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah. Yes, I tell you, this generation will, ha- will have to answer for it all. These wounds in Caesar's body, which have been made with dagger stabs, look strangely lip-like. It's what Anthony is noticing. And Anthony is saying, I am going to be the mouthpiece for those mouths and speak what they say. 
And that's exactly what the Gospels are predicting is going to happen once the sacrificial myth is, is uh, shown for what it is. In other words, the voice of the victim will start to be heard in the aftermath of the victimization episode. That's what the Gospels are. The Gospels are the manifestation of that fact. The voice of the victim is going to be heard in the marketplace after the episode of his victimization. And Anthony says, I am going, it's going to be my tongue that is going to be giving that, those mouths a voice. And here's what will happen if that happens. What happens if, if all culture is founded, if, if, if culture only knows how to continue to exist as, as a result of sacrificial, periodic sacrificial episodes, successful ones, what happens if the, the voice of the victim begins to speak its point of view after the, ep- the, the violent episode? All hell breaks loose. That's what happens. And that's what Anthony says. A curse shall light upon the limbs of men domestic fury and fierce civil strife shall cumber all the parts of Italy. Blood and destruction shall be so in use and dreadful objects so familiar that mothers shall but smile when they behold their infants quartered with the hands of war. All pity choked with custom of fell deeds. And that sounds terrible to us, but you know, 200 million people have died in wars in this century. And uh, often enough, it's been with the with the, the parents of those victims uh, with their hats over their hearts. Caesar is using myth and ritual to sanctify military violence, his conquest of the Pompey family. Brutus is using myth and ritual to sanctify his revolutionary violence, his assassination of Caesar. And Anthony is using a counter-myth and will use this counter-ritual to unleash indiscriminate violence. The world without the sacrificial protections. If you want to see the world without the sacrificial protections, which is the apocalyptic world, Shakespeare will provide it here in just a few minutes. Caesar used myth and ritual to sanctify his military violence. Tried to. Brutus tries to use myth and ritual to sanctify his revolutionary violence. Anthony is using a counter-myth and in a minute he will use a counter-ritual to unleash indiscriminate violence. The servant of Octavius Caesar comes in and he isn't prepared for it and he sees the body of Caesar and he's, he's overwhelmed and he begins to weep. And Anthony says, Thy heart is big, get thee apart and weep. Passion, I see, is catching. For mine eyes seeing those beads of sorrow stand in thine, begin to water. But this really, I think, is Shakespeare, as he does so often, preparing us for the, for the uh, events just ahead. Passion, I see, is catching. See? Passion is mimetic. Passion, I see, is catching. And so he's, we're going to see in a minute how he, how, what he does with that piece of pragmatic information that passion is catching. He, sh- he shows us what can be done with that. Antony tells the servant to go tell Octavius not to come into Rome quite yet. It's too early. He says, Here is a mourning Rome, a dangerous Rome, no Rome of safety for Octavius yet. 
But again, you have a pun because the audience does not have the script of the play. For here is a morning Rome. The conspirators had talked about the morning and what was going to happen in the morning of the Ides of March. And uh, there was a strong implication that the new morning represented not only a new day, but a new day, a new age, a new epoch. Uh, in the same way that the revolutionary rhetoric always speaks of how as soon as we eliminate these that have to be eliminated, there will, be, there will dawn a new day. See? And so this, the morning, it's morning in America, that kind of talk. We're going to have a new one, you see. And, uh, and once the sacrificial thing is, uh, is compromised, then it's always the morning after and never the morning of. So Anthony's saying, here is a morning Rome, M-O-U-R-N-I-N-G, a Rome in mourning. Now, the conspirators did not want that kind of a mourning Rome. They wanted a M-O-R-N-I-N-G Rome. And what they get is a little bit of both. And you can't have a little bit of both. It is a cultural mourning, M-O-R-N-I-N-G, if and only if there are no mourners regretting the victimization. The existence of mourners indicates that the myth and the sacrificial logic have failed to create retrospectively the necessary unanimity. And the pivot so often is funerals. What we do at the gravesite, at the funeral, is the key to it. The myth makers, Brutus, try to interpret the death one way, as uh, in a way that gives legitimacy to the to the killing, the mourners, uh, Anthony, try to interpret the f- the death another way, one which uh, claims it to be an illegitimate killing. If the mourners then go on to suggest the moral legitimacy of avenging the violence, which they have demonstrated to be illegitimate, then they will have thereby gone on to invent their own myth. We're in the forum now. Brutus said he had to appease the multitude. And the multitude is demanding that they be appeased. The plebeians are saying, we will be satisfied. We will be satisfied. Let us be satisfied. They are demanding some explanation. And Brutus says, then follow me and give me audience, friends. Cassius, go you into the other street and part the numbers. Those that will hear me speak, let them stay here. Those that will follow Cassius go with him, and public reason shall be rendered of Caesar's death. Notice that. Part the numbers. No matter how accomplished you are, and, and Brutus is accomplished enough, no matter how accomplished you are at applying the mythological logic, a a crowd beyond a certain size is going to overwhelm you. And so very insightfully he says let's have these go over here and these go over here and we'll talk to them one at a time sort of lower it below the the critical mass get each mob lowered below the critical mass and then we can begin working this is like uh, i think it was leo de rocher somebody was asked uh, what's the secret to success being a successful uh, baseball manager and he said, you keep the five guys that hate you away from the five who haven't made up their mind. <laughs> well, this is, a, this is instinctively that kind of logic, you see. And now Brutus goes to work. But before we hear Brutus, let's hear his spiritual uh, brethren. The knights who killed Becket in murder in a cathedral, immediately after the murder, speak to the audience. The first knight says, 
we beg you to give us your attention for a few moments. We know that you may be disposed to judge unfavorably of our action. You are Englishmen, and therefore you believe in fair play. And when you see one man being set upon by four, then your sympathies are all with the underdog. I respect those feelings. I share them. And then he goes on to rationalize that. He introduces the other knights, and one of them, the second knight, says, no one regrets the necessity for violence more than we do. Unhappily, there are times when violence is the only way in which social justice can be secured, etc. It's, it's another version of Caiaphas. It's better that one should die than the whole nation should be destroyed. And our own beloved Tom Jefferson, that, progressive, that Enlightenment progressive, is the one who said it best. He said the tree of liberty must be refreshed from time to time with the blood of patriots and tyrants. It is its natural nurture. A absolute proof, if we had no other, that he spent too much time with Thomas Paine. Here's what Bruce says. If there be any in this assembly, any dear friend of Caesar, to him I say that Brutus' love to Caesar was no less than him. If then that friend demand why Brutus rose against Caesar, this is my answer, not that I love Caesar less, but that I loved Rome more. Had you rather Caesar were living and all and die all slaves than that Caesar were dead to live all free men? That's perfectly ridiculous. It's sheer demagoguery. It is the fabrication of an algebraic formula out of thin air. Caesar living, you slaves. Caesar dead, you free. It's absolutely the bedrock of the sacrificial logic. Uh, Now now being used in a political context of uh, Republican Rome. But it's just poppycock. As Caesar loved me, I weep for him. As he was fortunate, I rejoiced at it. As he was valiant, I honor him. But as he was ambitious, I slew him. Notice I, 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 I. Now, Brutus was part of a conspiracy, a collective group. And suddenly, the spirit of Caesar has gotten into Brutus, and he begins to speak like Caesar. Now, he had said earlier, too bad we can't come by Caesar's spirit without dismembering Caesar. But he has certainly come by Caesar's spirit. He starts to speak like him. He starts to... Pretty soon he'll be talking about himself in the third person, you can tell. This is wonderful. He says, Who is here so base that would be a bondman, a slave? Now, what he's, he's got the mob, and he's saying, If anybody disagrees with me, you would rather be a slave. Does anybody here rather be a slave? And that means in order to, in order to object to anything Brutus is saying, you've got to... Put your hand up. Who wants to put your hand up in that crowd? See, nobody's going to do that. He knows that clearly. If any speak, for I have, for him I have offended. Who is here so rude that would not be a Roman? If any speak, for him I have offended. Who is here so vile that he will not love his country? If any speak, for him I have offended. I pause for a reply. Both, both Brutus and Antony know that you have to pause to let it cook. And, of course, the crowd goes nuts. None, Brutus, none. We're all for you. And he says, then none have I offended, and so on. Antony comes in with Caesar's body, and Brutus says, you stay here. Everybody stay here. Everybody stay here except me. I'm leaving. You stay here and listen to Antony. And as he leaves, they cry out, live, Brutus, live, live. And the third plebeian says, let him be Caesar. 
And that's why this play is called Julius Caesar. Uh, Julius Caesar, the man, dies in early in Act 3. But the play is called Julius Caesar because the spirit of Caesar haunts the play because he's the observed of all observers, as Hamlet was. And uh, everybody has, has, has developed a mimetic relationship. All the political uh, uh, aspirants have developed their sense of what political life is by watching Caesar. So the world is filled with clones of Caesar. So they say, let him be Caesar. It's easier to get, it's, it's easier to get rid of the man than the, than the phenomenon called Caesar as the, as the uh, Bolsheviks discovered. You know, They got rid of the czar. Czar is just a Russian word for Caesar. They got rid of the czar and instituted the, 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 the most czarist, anti-czar system that ever existed. The agitated crowd is finally convinced to settle down and listen to Antony's speech, but before they give him, in a way, they instruct him on what to say. They say, "'Twere best he speak no harm of Brutus here. This Caesar was a tyrant. Nay, that's certain. We are blessed that Rome is rid of him. And Antony goes to work. And I won't read all of this. You probably know it, but... Friends, Romans, countrymen, lend me your ears. I come to bury Caesar, not to praise him. And I'll skip around the text just to get through it quickly. The noble Brutus hath told you Caesar was ambitious. Here under leave of Brutus and the rest, for Brutus is an honorable man, so are they all honorable men. Come I to speak in Caesar's funeral. He was my friend, faithful and just to me, but Brutus says he was ambitious, and Brutus is an honorable man. Brutus says he was ambitious, and Brutus is an honorable man. I thrice presented him a kingly crown, which he did thrice refuse. Was this ambition? Yet Brutus says he was ambitious, and sure he is an honorable man. Bear with me. My heart is in the coffin here with Caesar, and I must pause till it come back to me. So like Brutus, he pauses in the middle and lets it work a little bit on the crowd. And they start to say, well, this makes sense all of a sudden. And maybe he wasn't ambitious. And, and there isn't a nobler man in all of Rome than Anthony. And then he says, Oh, masters, if I were disposed to stir your hearts and minds to mutiny and rage, I should do Brutus wrong and Cassius wrong, who you all know are honorable men. I will not do them wrong. I'd rather choose to wrong the dead, to wrong myself and you, than I, than I will wrong such honorable men. And here's a parchment with the seal of Caesar. I found it in his closet. Tis his will. Let but the commons bear, hear this testament, which, pardon me, I do not mean to read, and they will go and kiss dead Caesar's wounds and dip their napkins in his sacred blood. Yea, beg a hair of him for memory and dying, mention it in their wills, bequeathing it as a rich legacy unto their issue. And, of course, they say, Read us the will, read us the will, the will of Caesar. And Anthony is coy. I must not read it. It will inflame you. It will make you mad if you, when you find out that you are Caesar's heirs. The will, the will, Caesar's will. And notice the pun on Caesar's will. We want Caesar's will. And he makes another reference to the honorable men and, and they say, they're not honorable men, they're traitors. And so he said, Coy again, you will compel me then to read the will? Then 
make a ring around the corpse of Caesar and let me show you him that made the will. Now this is what Brutus did not do. Brutus supplied masterful rhetoric, but he did not provide the common people with a ritual, with a, with a rite. And Anthony is going to do that. So he says, make a circle around the body of Caesar and I will come down off of this podium and I will join you in that circle around the body of Caesar and we will see what we can do. And he takes up the, the mantle of Caesar. You all do know this mantle. Look, in this place ran Cassius's dagger through. See what a rent the envious Cusca made. Through this the well-beloved Brutus stabbed, making each one of them specific. Now, ritual sacrifice is supposed to... The, the executor is supposed to be the god. And so the human agent must be in a highly ritualized role like a, like a priest in the inner sanctum or else completely anonymous like the, like the, uh, the executioner, the, 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 the man at the guillotine or the, the, the man with the axe, you see, with the hood. Anonymity because it's a divine act. Sacralized violence is a divine act. And he's eliminating the anonymity. This is where their wounds went in. These men. And this, he said, burst his heart most when Brutus betrayed him. And so there he is at the base of Pompey's statue, another reference to that. And they're weeping, and he says, Now you weep, kind souls... What weep you when you but behold our Caesar's vesture wounded? Look you here. And he pulls the mantle back and shows the bloody body of Caesar. Look you here. Here on himself marred as you see with traitors. And it's the scandalous, it's the, it's the liturgical crescendo. It's the revelation of the victimized body after he has intoned the names of the, of the murderer. And the first exclamation, Oh, piteous spectacle. And that's exactly what it is, a spectacle. Oh, most bloody sight. We will be revenged. And all together say, Revenge about, which means to turn around, let's go. But about, is, it, that's exactly what they do. 180. This is the big 180. They were all in favor of Brutus, right? And Anthony has pulled it off with masterful rhetoric, rhetoric that's, equal to Brutus's, but he added the little touch of a ritual. And now they're wild. And they have, they have uh, concocted their own sacralized violence. Only it is, it's a, a violence that is random, indiscriminate, about to run amok. It's apocalyptic violence. Revenge, about, seek, burn, fire, kill, slay. And then Anthony says, I have neither written nor words nor worth, action nor utterance, nor the power of speech to stir men's blood. I only speak right on. I tell you that which you yourselves do know. Show you sweet Caesar's wounds. Poor, poor, dumb mouths and bid them speak for me. Again, he's having the, 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 the victim, the wounds of the victim speak to the crowd. And they go wild. We'll mutiny, burn the house of Brutus, seek the conspirators. Anthony says, well, wait, hold, wait a minute. 
you forgot about the will. <laughs> I was going to read the will to you. Oh, they said, oh, yeah, right, the will, right. We've got that. Okay, he says, I'll tell you the will. And this is where it becomes a cheap, it, this is cheap parody. And Shakespeare's trying to make another point about the mom. He left every Roman citizen 75 drachmas. This is like a payoff. This is just pure payoff. Everybody gets some cash, see? And their ardor for Caesar just goes up immensely when they find out they're all going to get cash. And then he left you these, the parks uh, of his estates to the public. Now you can walk through those parks. They all, the first plebeian, come, away, away, we'll burn th his body in the holy place and with the brands fire the traitor's houses. Go fetch fire, pluck down benches, pluck down forms, windows, anything. And they flee in all directions to perform all manner of uh, chaos. And Anthony left on stage says, Now let it work, mischief. Thou art afoot, take thou what course thou wilt. In a sense... What Anthony has done in his speech and in his ritual is that he has dismantled the sacrificial logic momentarily only to have it resuscitate in, in the form of random violence in the, in the sense that all violence now committed is holy violence. This is, this is called, this is what in the Old Testament is called uh, uh, the ban. The ban means everything gets wiped out. Everything gets what? Total violence. All violence is sacred violence. All violence is sacred violence. This is the extreme final cataclysm of the sacrificial logic. All violence is sacred violence. When you get to the place where there is no, no violence can be sacred violence, you're forced to either to step into the kingdom that Jesus described or to be seduced one more time into the sacrificial logic in which there it can be no longer any division between holy violence and vulgar violence so that all violence has been sacralized. And then you have the apocalypse. The this, this is the Shakespearean apocalypse. Scene 3, Act 3 is a little vignette about what life is like under those circumstances. The poet, Senna, is running across the stage followed by the mom. He's absolutely innocent, has had nothing to do with any of this, and he's being chased by the mom. And they grab him. And one after another, the members of the mob say, What is your name? Whither are you going? Where do you dwell? Are you, are you a married man or a bachelor? Answer every man directly, I and briefly, I and wisely. What was that question the House on American Activities Committee used to ask? Where are you now or have you ever been? It's, it's in that, it's in that uh, genre, you see. And ironically and humorously, one of the questions is, are you a married man or a bachelor? See, what's your name? Where are you going? Where do you dwell? Ask him anything. You see, what? this is a crowd desperate for some kind of distinction and finding none to satisfy the sacrificial impulse. Senna says, 
What is my name? Whither am I going? Where do I dwell? Am I a married man or a bachelor? Then to answer every man directly and briefly, wisely and truly, wisely I say, I am a bachelor. Shakespeare poking fun at how absolutely irrational all of this is. But in a sacrificial frenzy like this, it doesn't matter. No matter what he says, it's going to scandalize his listeners. And so he says, I'm a bachelor. And one of them says, that's as much to say they are fools that marry. And he punches him. It's like the wife who gives her husband two ties and he comes down with one. She says, oh, well, you didn't like the other one. <laughs> doesn't matter. And uh, they find out his name is Senna. Now, one of the conspirators' name was Senna. And so they say, tear him to pieces. He's a conspirator. And he says, I'm Senna the poet. I'm Senna the poet. Tear him to pieces for his bad verse. Tear him for his bad verse. Doesn't matter. He says, I am not Senna the conspirator. It is no matter. His name is Senna. Pluck but his name out of his heart and turn him going. And the third plebeian says, tear him, tear him, and they attack him. Doesn't matter. Girard says, the general trend is clear. It takes less and less time for more and more people to polarize against more and more victims for flimsier and flimsier reasons. That's the sacrificial crisis. And there, there, there are places in inner cities in America where if you, if you go into them wearing the wrong colors, you get shot. Flimsier and flimsier reasons. It's not being channeled into some great cultural sacrificial operation. All of that, that's falling apart. And so it's being, it's, 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 it's uh, metastasized. I, ha I keep a little file on some of this stuff, and I stopped keeping it about a year and a half ago because it couldn't, it was, it was too much time spent clipping these things out of the paper. This exact same thing. The one that I happen to have in the file is the one about, and this goes back two years, in Northern Ireland. First line in the newspaper story, two British soldiers were shot to death Saturday after mourners, mourners at an IRA funeral dragged them from a car, beat them with crowbars, and hoisted them naked before cheering onlookers. The soldiers, blood streaming from their heads, were then led to the top of a 12-foot wall around a football field for the crowd to see. They were hauled behind the building. Shots were heard. A short while later, their bullet-ridden bodies were found in a vacant lot. And why? because they took the wrong turn and ended up on a street where the funeral procession was taking place. And the crowd, in the, at the funeral, let's remember, drugged them out of their car and killed them. And there's that ongoing story in New York about the uh, events in Bensonhurst where 40 white kids chased one black kid and killed him. In New York State, one of the many categories of uh, murder and homicide that we now have in the criminal justice system. You know, the Eskimos have 20 words for snow. And we, have, we have some multiple version of murders and homicides. And one of them, uh, disturbingly enough, is called depraved indifference. Anthony had said, I only show you sweet Caesar's wounds, poor, poor, dumb wounds, 
and bid them speak for me. If, as the Gospels say, the voice of the murdered prophets begins to be heard, the sacrificial logic begins to fall apart. And if the sacrificial logic begins to fall apart, the sacrificial uh, uh, nature of our social and cultural lives has to work itself out in random and, and uh, reciprocal ways instead of in common cultural way. We no longer have some shared object of sacrificial enmity and it starts to break down. Well, the, exact, the extreme version of that is what Anthony predicted when he dismantled the sacrificial logic. He says, Mothers shall but smile when they behold their infants quartered with the, bands, with the hands of war. All pity choked with custom of fell deed. And Caesar's spirit, ranging for revenge, with Ate by his side come hot from hell, shall in these confines with a monarch's voice cry havoc and let slip the dogs of war. So Caesar's spirit, which let's remember was a sacrificial spirit, is now metastasizing. And she and showing itself in perverted little forms all over the place. And you get, and it cries havoc. Now, havoc was the military uh, command which meant, which meant total destruction. Absolutely no limits on the destructive violence. No prisoners, no sparing of the women and children, It's Shakespeare's apocalypse. It's a kind of painful irony that in today's edition of the New York Times on the op-ed page, there is a piece by Irina Ginsberg, who is a Soviet novelist. She speaks in this piece about the fear that Jews in the Soviet Union are now experiencing. She says, life has become fearful as never before. In Moscow, the House of Writers is the place where prominent literary figures uh, congregate. And she says, quote, in January, a gang of intruders burst into a meeting of writers. They yelled, Yids, get out to your Israel, and the pogrom will come in a few months. End quote. And then Ginsburg goes on to say, the killing was called for on May 5th, which, by the way, is today, the birth date of Karl Marx, the Jew and communist. She goes on, you cannot imagine what is happening in Moscow. Panic, terror, fear. People are talking about one thing only, how and where to go when they come to kill you. And then she goes on to talk about several incidences. One is when she stood in a line for fresh fruits and vegetables. She says, quote, I stand in a long line for oranges and ask, who is last? A man turns to me and says, get out of here. This is not your country. You don't belong here. 
Ginsburg then says, people are full of anger. But this is not the most awful part. The worst is the fear of pogroms. On TV, radio, and in the newspapers, there is endless repetition of the words pogrom, bloodletting, civil war. Every Russian who wants to enter Pamyat, the anti-Semitic Russian nationalist group, must give the organization four full addresses of Jewish families to use when the time is ripe. They are getting impatient, Ginsburg says. Now, that's a very troubling article depicting some of the same craziness that we have seen Shakespeare allude to in this play today. I realize how grim all of this is. But it seems to me we have to reacquaint ourselves with the, with the grim fact of the problem, the historical problematic of human violence before we can sufficiently appreciate the scope of the New Testament's claim to deliver us from all of that. And if we work our way through this grim scene of modern confusion and violence and proto-violence, I think we'll be in a better position to say with some genuine conviction the words of salvation, redemption, and so on that are our heritage via the New Testament and the gospel tradition, words which have become so empty uh, because they have lost any relationship to the kind of confusion that we've been studying here. So I'm not trying to have us rub our noses in this uh, grim picture uh, for no reason at all, but in order for us to prepare ourselves to receive uh, the good news.